0: Um, This morning we have uh, the inordinate privilege and joy of a new preacher coming and sharing. And so Helena, why don't you stand, why don't you come up onto stage. And so um, as Helena stands here. So, um, uh, Strong start. Strong start. <laughs> so um, it's uh, it's such a joy for me to welcome Helena onto stage to come and to share and to preach. And as she stands here, um, I think most of you know that her and Josh serve on the eldership team. And as she stands here, um, you might think what qualifies her to preach is it uh, the um, the 30, 35, 40 hours of prep that you've put in, maybe more, I don't know. Uh, she's put a hang of a lot of time into this. Uh, although that is important, it's not that. It's probably uh, the 10, uh, 12, 15 years of her life that have led to this point. Um, and so one of the most sacred things within this church and community is this pulpit, and we got it. And uh, the thing that... Um, we look for when people come in and preaching amongst many other things is the substance of their lives and so as elena stands here this morning it's from the backdrop of how she's gone about her life for years that have led to this and uh, and so as a preacher you don't stand and preach from the substance of your prep it's from the substance of your life and your relationship with god and coming and feeding that in and so it's been a joy to Uh, Watch Helena over the years. Um, She's gifted in many different ways, but her relationship with God goes deep. And this morning would be the overflow of that to us. And so, can I just urge you and um, ask you to open your ears, open them up wide, stretch them out, open your hearts, and even in the midst of this, as Helena's speaking, I pray that you would hear God's voice come and speak to each and every one of us.
1: Thank you, Steph. Morning, guys. Um, so, yeah, as Steph said, I'm Helena, I'm married to Josh, who was up here earlier as well. We've been married for about ten and a half years, and we've got three precious little boys that are upstairs, and year by year, they get less and less little. Thanks for that tear-jerking video, Josh. <laughs> um, when, um, when I heard that the portion of scripture that I get to share on this morning was from Song of Songs, I honestly thought that Steph was joking. Um, I thought, isn't there some kind of rule that you don't let like a, a new preacher share from Song of Songs? Like, isn't there a rule like that? So it took him some um, um, convincing to convince me that he wasn't joking. But I actually, I really enjoyed studying this this portion of scripture. And as excitedly nervous as I am standing here, um, you guys are family. New Jen is my home. You guys are family. So. Um, I feel like you guys are going to go here with me, you're going to be here with me, so that really gives me so much comfort, and just off the back of an amazing time of worship, um, I've got such confidence that the Holy Spirit is here, I've got such confidence in God's Word, I've got such confidence that the Spirit will, will speak, and He'll speak um, directly and differently to each one of us here, so that's, that's where I rest, and that's where my confidence is, um, so let's get into it. We know that we've been in Song of Songs for a little while, um, um, earlier this year as well as last week, and like Steph mentioned, there's, there's two different layers to this book. Um, there's the surface level, which is really celebrating the physical love and attraction between an, a man and a woman, but much deeper for, and accessible to all of us is the illustration of Jesus' love and his longing and his desire between him between Christ and us, his bride. So from last week's message, um, we we heard that these two lovers, this man and this woman, they had just spent, um, they've been together. They've enjoyed each other's nearness. They've enjoyed each other's physical presence. They have just been so attentive to each other. And he absolutely did not hold back at all in letting her know how he feels about her. And um, what we got from that was... God loves to spend time with us. He delights in the pleasure of our company. And from this piece of scripture that Steph read before we went into a time of worship, um, you can see there's really a mutual desire between the two of them. So she might be peacefully sleeping. She might be um, drowsy, but um, she's, she's at peace. She's at rest. She's in bed, but her heart is awake. There's an alertness. There's an awareness to her lover. So I imagine maybe she's, she's lying there and she is, she's still enjoying the, the memories of their togetherness from the previous chapter. So maybe that's going through her mind because as soon as she hears him, his call, as, she, as soon as she hears him knocking, she recognizes him. She knows that it's him. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So, this isn't necessarily a call to unbelievers into a relationship with Jesus. This isn't necessarily a call to salvation. John wrote this to a church that Jesus called lukewarm. Jesus was disgusted that they were neither hot nor cold. Their attitude towards him was quite indifferent. It was mediocre, um, it was hesitant, almost reluctant and unconvincing. So this was written, this I stand at the door knock was written to a group of believers. It was written to a church. It was written to us. And what what was the call? The call was to intimacy. The call was to open the door to intimacy with Jesus. Open the door. I will come in and eat with you and you with me, and I will be with you. The call is to communion with God. And in Hebrews, it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Again, this wasn't written to unbelievers. This was written to a group of believers. And the call is, don't believer, don't harden your heart. When God comes calling, believer, Christian, don't harden your heart when you hear my knock to him and enjoy his company. And notice here in the story of the man and the woman that it's him who initiates. He comes to her door. They were apart. He was out all night. He's coming to the door. He's initiating. He's calling. He's knocking. He's saying his head is wet with dew and his head, his hair is wet with the drops of the night, indicating, yeah, he's been out all night. So there's this longing in him to be with her, and, um, and I'm still remembering last week. God longs for the pleasure of our company. Jesus desires to be with us. He's knocking. He's calling. And then he speaks these four terms of endearment over her. So if you're married, if you're in a relationship, it's very likely that you've got like cute little pet names for each other, right? Like love, dear, darling, sweetheart, smoopsy poo sugar-lump whatever it is, it's, it's for you and your lover, it's for you and your partner, that's not meant for anyone else, right? Um, so here, and also maybe, um, maybe Song of Songs has inspired you to be a little bit more adventurous and romantic with your sweet talk, hey? <laughs> Um But here the man is, he's coming to her, this is Jesus coming to us, and he's calling us three, four very intentional names, Names just for us, names specially meant just for us. This is him reminding us who we are. This is the man calling her by these intentional four names, reminding her of who she is and what she means to him. And um, quite a few of these are, are echoes from what he's already spoken, and, and it's um, familiar throughout the book. So first, he calls her my sister. Now, of all the romantic pet names a man might have for his lover, I doubt sister is even near to the list. Like It doesn't really strike a very romantic chord, but what, is, what does he mean? What does he mean meaning when he says, my sister? He's, in that moment, he's relating to her on a very human level. On a very human level, he's relating to her. And in that moment, she can have absolute security, assurance, and confidence that she is fully known in her weaknesses, in her flaws and in her failings. In my flaws, in my failings, and my weaknesses, I can have confidence and assurance that I am known by Jesus. It's the man Jesus coming to us and saying, I know, I know. I've been there, I can relate. He is not unsympathetic to our plights, our needs, and our shortcomings. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. There's a level of familiarity, isn't there, with being able to relate to someone who's been through kind of what you've been through, who knows what it's like to walk through some of the stuff that you've walked through. And this is Jesus. That's what he's meaning when he's coming to her and saying, my sister. Next, he calls her my love, and in some translations, my darling. And here he is reminding her of his tender love and his affection. So on the one hand, he's saying, I know your shortcomings and your weaknesses, and yet I love you. We can rest so secure and assured that we are fully known by Jesus and so fully and gloriously loved and accepted by him. My love, my darling. Next he calls her my, my dove. And in the previous chapter, he said her eyes are like doves, meaning that she only has eyes for him. Doves are often associated with purity, with peace, and with loyalty. They, um, they're also known to mate for life. And if their partner dies, they often don't mate again. So There's that loyalty, that commitment, and that devotion. So he is calling her, Jesus is calling us to devotion without compromise. My dove, keep your eyes on me. Fix your eyes on me, is Jesus saying. And then next, my perfect one, or my flawless one. Again, this is not true of her, is it? This is not true of us. We know we're not perfect. We know we're not flawless. He knows 100% she's not perfect or flawless. So Why is he calling her this? He's seeing her as she will one day be. He is seeing us as we will one day be. And in calling us perfect, in calling us flawless, in in her lover, in this book, calling her perfect and flawless, he he is showing her her future with him. And in that moment, motivating her to live in that today, calling us to maturity and devotion and commitment. He looks at us in love and sees our perfection. So, all this beautiful name calling, all this beautiful wooing of her, and still she's reluctant to immediately go to the door and open. And what might have happened if she had immediately opened? Like, that's quite an interesting thing to think about. I'm not going to delve into that now, but imagine she had immediately responded and opened. Um, And isn't this sometimes what happens with us? When we hear the call of Jesus, when we hear God calling, do we sometimes make up excuses? Why not to respond immediately? It's like she's saying here, um, you know, I've already had my shower. I'm really comfy in bed. I've got my comfy pants on. I'm cozy up with my hot water bottle, like, must I, must I get out of bed now and go open? You know? But what is it that he's calling her to? It's not a list of to-dos, a list of chores. It's a, it's a calling to closeness. It's a calling to intimacy. It's a calling to devotion. It's a calling to nearness. So this is what he's saying when he's, he's knocking and he's calling to you. Jesus is saying, enough of this lukewarmness. I desire your company. I desire closeness with you. So she's been reluctant to go and open. But then as she hears her lover's hand on the latch of the door, something stirs in her heart. She says, my heart was thrilled within me. And another translation, my heart began to pound within me. So her heart is racing. So maybe she's suddenly, she's anxious that she might miss him. Maybe she's all of a sudden just overcome with desperation. Like, I have to be with him. I can't bear to be without him. So her heart is racing as she reaches for the door handle and she's opening it. But she's missed him. He's not there anymore. My beloved had turned and gone. So what happened? Did he get tired of waiting for her? Was he impatient at her delay? I don't think so. I don't think it was irritation or frustration or impatience. We've seen throughout this whole book, he's been absolutely besotted over her. He's been absolutely devoted to her and she's saying my soul failed me my heart sank maybe you can relate to this this feeling this um, feeling of just total despair and loneliness and longing maybe longing for your husband or wife longing for friendship longing for clarity longing for direction, longing for peace, longing for God. So she's in the space, and, and what does she do next? She's opened the door, and he's gone. Her heart has failed her. What does she do next? She goes looking. She goes out. Now she's really getting her feet dirty. Now she's really, she's forgotten the excuses that she's made, and she's realized, like, I need him. And she goes looking. She goes out searching, and she's calling for him. She's calling for him, crying out to him, looking for him. But there's no answer, and she can't find him. Why? Why does God sometimes hide his face? Why does he sometimes hide his presence from us? Why does it sometimes feel like he's far away? like you're in the desert or the wilderness and you're calling out and you're crying out, but you can't find him and there's no answer. I know without a doubt there is deep hardship and pain in this room. Either you have endured and you've struggled through something that you have felt is unbearable, or maybe you're in that space right now. Maybe it's the loss of someone really close to you. Maybe it's the loss of a, a parent, a family member, a child. Maybe it's a broken friendship, a broken relationship, or financial devastation. Maybe it's physical pain that you're sitting with, or medical diagnosis. Maybe there's some situation that you cannot control and you cannot resolve. What is keeping you up at night and feeling like your heart is physically aching and breaking and leaving you with a pit in your stomach? Maybe the questions are unending and the emotions are overwhelming. It's the space of absolute darkness and feeling of despair and hopelessness. I had a really amazing dad. Um, a lot of you would have known him. He wasn't perfect. Um, he was human, but he was wonderful. He was a, an, a, an awesome dad. Um, he was always just so present and available through through my childhood and growing up. Um, and he loved God. He loved his church. He loved this church. He loved God's people. Um, so many of you here would have known him and would have known how he absolutely loved little children obsessed. <laughs> I often thought like i i can 't wait um, I just wanted to kind of have kids immediately after we got married, so that my dad could have grandkids. Um, he was made to be a granddad, absolutely made to be a granddad and um, so over the years he had a, a few health issues, and in two thousand fifteen he got he got really sick um It was never clear what the final diagnosis was, but he was in and out of hospital for months. Remember, we celebrated, I think it was even New Year's, with him in hospital. I was pregnant with our first child. um, So my two sisters and my mom and Josh and myself were there in hospital with him. Um, And in March 2016, our eldest son, Dustin, was born, and my dad finally had his first grandchild. But then, uh, seven weeks later... Um, in May, we got the phone call from my mom that he had passed away in hospital. And you, you never, you never forget that moment, do you? When your world is breaking around you, and it feels like life will never be the same. The months that followed after the initial disbelief and even adrenaline that comes after grieving a loss, I just remember there was this, this really dark numbness, you know continued going to church, but my heart was really closed off, and I could feel myself growing distant from God, and at the same time, we had this new little baby that we had to adjust to, and you know, everything that goes around that, and we had found out that he needed a major skull operation at the age of nine months, so in that time, it was just all the emotions, anger, sadness, disappointment, but I remember most of all, confusion, over and over again in the Psalms, we hear of people, often David, crying out to God, calling out to him God, hear my groans. God, when will you answer me? God, where are you? God, why are you so far? Why do you hide yourself from me, my God? Calling out to God, crying out to him. And I think of Joseph, who was thrown into a pit by his brothers and sold into slavery, wrongfully imprisoned. I think of Daniel, who, was, who faithfully served God. He was loyal to God. And then he was tricked and betrayed and thrown to the lions. I think of Elijah, who so powerfully and faithfully served God. And then he ended up in a cave in the wilderness, wanting to die. St. John of the Cross um, called this kind of soul suffering and this darkness a dark night of the soul. And this is used to describe... Um, a season of intense despair and sorrow. It's not, a, it's not a biblical term, but it's a biblical concept. As you read through the scriptures, you'll see over and over again this kind it's sort of a spiritual depression as experienced all throughout the Bible, and even by Jesus. Um, and this is a time when God feels especially far away. It might even, like is the case here with the woman in Song of Songs, might even be in contrast to a space where she was especially near to him, where their um, closeness was especially sweet. And so it makes this pain even that much harder and darker. A dark night of the soul might have the ability to strip away the bells and the whistles of life, to distill our thoughts, to deconstruct our ideas, and to leave us open to God, exposed to God, as is happening here. Her veil was taken away, and she was left exposed and vulnerable. So, again, the question, why? Is there a purpose for this pain? God will take our suffering, and he'll use it to draw us closer to him. He's knocking, he's calling. So the pain that we experience and we're going through, it's not meant to be endured alone. God will use these moments to draw us closer to him. God is knocking, calling us to intimacy with him, hand in hand with the Jesus of Gethsemane the man who prayed all through the night in the garden, whose head was likely wet with dew, and whose hair was damp from the drops of the night. This Jesus who cried out to God in desperation in anguish, he said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And we read in Luke how while he was praying he was in such agony in the garden that his sweat became like big drops of blood that fell to the ground there are certain depths of our relationship with Jesus that we that we cannot go to we can't access without going through suffering with him we will experience pain in this life we will have hardships in this life are we going to experience it hand in hand with Jesus or without him And what about God's promise again and again throughout the Bible that he will never leave you or forsake you? That promise still stands. Maybe his discernible presence is hidden for a season, and maybe that's to draw out a stronger yearning and a deeper desire and dependence on him. But he's still there. He's still there. His eyes are always attentive to us, and his heart is always tender to us. Psalm 139. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. So God is for you. Even in the darkness, even in the storm, even in the desert, God is for you. He's he's always near. So cling to him. Anchor yourself to him. Hear that knock. Hear that calling. Open to him. It is an invitation to understand him better, an invitation to know him fuller and love him deeper. These these roads that we travel on that might be, or these roads that we're walking that might be full of pain and and hurt and sorrow and despair. These same roads can lead us to God, can lead us to a new encounter with God, to see God in a way that we've never seen Him before, to experience God in the way that we've never experienced Him before, to take our love to places with Jesus that we've never been before, as we. Travel these roads with Jesus. We experience Him in a new light. We get to see Him from a new vantage point that we'd never been able to unless we go through that with Him hand in hand. So, in the space that this woman of Song of Songs is in, and she's despairing, she's lonely, she's longing, she's at her lowest, I can kind of imagine that these things that He has spoken over her, calling her my love, my darling, my sister, my perfect one, my flawless one, my dove. I imagine that she's holding, them, holding onto them so tightly and reminding her of his love for her while she's achingly looking for him. And she's gone out and she's left her excuses behind and she's left her comforts behind and she is longing to be with him. She wants nothing more in this moment. So through all she is enduring, this loneliness, this abuse, this loss and vulnerability, she's seeking him. So when, not if, tough times come, like when, and we're feeling far from God, do we cling to his promises that he's spoken over us? Do you cling to the truth that he's spoken over you? Do you remind yourself of who you are in him? Do you remind yourself of who he is? Or do you try and make, make sense of it in your own understanding? Or do you lean on his wisdom and his knowledge and who he says you are? My love, my sister, my darling. So while she's here at her lowest and in this dark and and difficult place, she's saying, my heart is faint. I am sick with love. And her her desire for him and her wanting him hasn't waned at all, has it? It almost feels like it's increasing. She's getting more and more desperate to be with him. She's longing for him more and more. She doesn't sort of give up and say, well, well I tried. And I kind of go back to her, her comforts and kind of sit and, and wallow. No, she's getting more and more desperate, more and more um, longing him, longing for him. So in this space where my heart is faint and I'm sick with love, she says, and then she gets asked, what makes him so special? Why is he so much better than everything else and anyone else that is fighting for your attention and your affections? Why is this guy so important to you that you'll leave your comforts and your excuses behind and then you'll 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 be exposed and vulnerable and looking for him? What makes him so special? What makes him stand out? This is this what the others are asking her? And this is feels like such a highlight. In this, it's like her heart absolutely explodes. It's almost like she's been waiting for someone to ask her this. She's endured such pain, such suffering, and she's treasuring something in her heart. She's been waiting. For someone to ask her this. And she launches into this beautiful, beautiful description of who he is. Who is this guy that I am pursuing? And why am I pursuing him? And she lists his attributes and the things that she admires about him. The things that make her heart sing. It's this beautiful description of who he is and what he means to her. And it's, it's not just one or two lines of like, yeah, he's, he's cute, eh? And, like, he's got a nice smile and he makes me laugh. Like, no. It, it's almost like it goes on and on and on, and she's just, she cannot get enough of explaining to these people that's asking her, This is why I love him. So, in this incredible time of suffering and loneliness, what is she doing? She's worshiping, she's praising, she's reminding herself, Who is my lover? As much as she is telling, she's reminding. And she's saying, because I've tasted and I've seen, I can remember the closeness that we shared. I remember his tenderness. I remember his nearness. I remember what he has spoken over me. I've tasted and I've seen. I know his kindness and his goodness. She's speaking from personal experience. And by singing his praises and reminding herself of who he is, Michael Eaton calls this a sort of a spiritual recovery or a spiritual restoration. And her response is just, she's captivated by him. Even though she can't feel his nearness, even though she can't touch him in that moment, her response is full of adoration. She does not respond with bitterness or offense or coldness, even though she hasn't found him yet. Her response is adoration and love. I read this and I think, how deeply must she have known him in the past to be able to respond like this, to be able at her lowest to respond in praise? She must have really known him. She must have really experienced his closeness. So this looks on the surface like a list of physical attributes, right? Um, but I think we know by now in Song of Songs that you kind of got to go a little bit deeper to find the truer meaning of something. Um, and it reminded me a lot of during literature and poetry studies in school, where a word is not just at its surface meaning. You kind of have to look for the hidden meaning. You need to look for the right connotations and connections, and then eventually, like this, uh, almost a fresh meaning and a new clarity and a truer meaning will appear of the poem. So. This 100% is a collection of poems, so we're going to work through it like that. And look, what do these words mean? What is the saying about Jesus? She's saying, my beloved is radiant and ruddy. And here, radiant is pointing to his divinity. He is dazzlingly glorious. He is radiantly divine. And ruddy would refer to a healthy complexion, which means he is so human. He is so man. So at the same time, he is dazzlingly radiant in his divinity and in his glory. And at the same time, he is beautifully of the earth. He is beautifully human. So at the same time, being God, at the same time, man, able to relate with us. He is distinguished, outstanding, chief among 10,000. No one even comes close to him. I can spot him in a sea of 10,000 people. I know my love. All of these people, all of these things, fighting for my affections, fighting for my love, I see him. There is no one like him. He stands out. It's only him. His head is the finest or the purest gold, and this is talking about his leadership and his authority his authority over all creation, and his sovereignty. He is sovereign above all. His leadership is trustworthy and pure. His authority is excellent and perfect. Jesus' authority was made perfect in his suffering, just like gold is refined and made pure by fire. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. So this could point to the Nazarite vow which um, meant those taking the vow wouldn't cut their hair, so it meant the men had long hair. Even though Jesus was not a Nazarite, this could be pointing to his dedication and his commitment to God and his people. And um, the the luscious um, black hair could also point to the vigor of youth, the energy and the vitality and strength that comes with youth. His eyes are like doves. So previously he had said her eyes are like doves, and now she's returning the compliment saying that he has eyes only for me. I am the apple of his eye. I am so safe and so secure in his affection and his devotion. He, he, he looks at no one else but me. I have his att- attention. He knows me. He sees me. His tender gaze is full of wisdom, discernment, peace. He's omniscient. His cheeks are like beds of spices. This is another echo of what he had called her, or he had said of her, and what he admired about her from the previous chapter. So our cheeks betray our emotions, right? Um, whether you are sad or angry, embarrassed, excited, happy, it shows up in your face, your, your expressions in your face. Jesus is no stoic deity, He does not shy away from letting us know how he feels about us. He's not some one-dimensional movie character that only has a very, very limited range of emotions and experiences. We can look into his face and we can see his love for us. We can see his desire for us and his longing for us. He is angered by injustice. He grieves loss and he delights in our company. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His words are sweet and rich, full of life, full of kindness and truth. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. This speaks of his omnipotence. He's powerful to act and carry out his purposes. He is powerful and strong to stretch out those arms on the cross, carry the weight of the sin of the world, and conquer death. His arms are rods of gold. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. Now, body refers to his torso area, and in that area are your lungs, your heart, and your stomach. And how often do we use those, those physical organs to convey emotions, right? I've got butterflies in my tummy. My heart skipped a beat. He took the breath out of my lungs. All of these emotions, um, just to this... Um, these very physical organs, even though emotions are processed in our brains. That's cool how that works. Um, so, his his affections, the things that he feels, they tender towards us. Um, and his, his affections and um, compassions are pure. His love is merciful, and it's lavish and precious, like jewels and sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns, set on bases of gold. Again, This speaks of strength and stability. Like secure marble pillars, he supports and he stabilizes. Jesus is able to fulfill his plans and purposes. His ways are immovable, unshakable, and permanent. Just like you can trust a strong marble pillar to hold your weight and support you, so you can trust Jesus to support you and to hold your weight. His appearance is like Lebanon. Choice as the cedars. He is impressive. His presence is stately, blessed, honorable, revealing his glory. His mouth is sweetness itself. And this is speaking again of his intimacy with us. So what's her conclusion? He is altogether desirable. Another translation, he is altogether lovely. This, this is why I'm looking for him so desperately, This is why I'm longing for him. This is my beloved and this is my friend. There's such beautiful closeness there. This is the one I love before anything or anyone else. I find it so beautiful that in her lowest moments of despair, her eyes are lifted and she is fixated on him. As she's running to him, searching for him, She's captivated by him. She's meditating on all these attributes that make him stand out and that makes him precious to her. She knows her lover. She knows her lover. And she knows his love for her. I read this and I think wow, I want that. I want that, that that knowledge of Jesus that goes beyond just a head knowledge, that experiential knowledge of Jesus, this closeness with Jesus that makes her praise His strength. She worships His wisdom. She can look into his face and see his tender gaze on her. She worships his sovereignty, his infallible authority her heart is filled with the knowledge of Christ. That is beautiful. And this is how Job was able to say, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. So Job definitely went through a season of suffering. When all his children died, his wife abandoned him, his riches were stripped away from him, and his health failed. In the space of sorrow, sorrow, and suffering, and anguish, he went from a place of having heard of God to seeing God with his eye. Through traveling through anguish and suffering with God, he came to a place of deeper intimacy and deeper knowledge of Jesus, of God. He encountered God in a way that he had never encountered him before through his dark night of the soul. And this is how Horatio Spafford could write, could write the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. He was successful. Um, he was really successful and wealthy. But the Great Chicago Fire in 1871, along with the economic downturn of 1873, left him absolutely financially ruined and devastated. Him and his family he had a wife and four children. They had a trip planned from America to England. Um, And at the last minute, he decided to to stay behind, and so his wife and children, his four daughters, went ahead. And it was while on this journey that their ship collided with a sea vessel, and all four of his daughters died. Shortly afterwards, he went to meet his grieving wife in England, and he was inspired to write this hymn while traveling close to where his daughters died. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. What was Spafford's response During this deep suffering and despair, he turned to his Savior and he worshiped. The muses can start coming up. Toward the end of the year in 2016, it was a few months after uh, my dad passed away and um, shortly before Dustin's skull operation. I remember I was in the back, I was during a Sunday meeting and I was in the back there. um, like I said, I had been coming to church over those months, but my heart was cold and I was mostly disengaged. Um, I, could, I could, to a large extent, fake it with people, but it was in moments of worship that felt so raw, that felt so sore, that my walls went up and I withdrew. I remember I was standing in the back that was during worship, was holding Dusty, a couple of months old, he was sleeping, and in that moment, it felt like something was compelling me to worship. And it wasn't like what, what came after that was, you know, you know worship with abandon and on the top of my lungs and singing and dancing. To be honest, what escaped my throat was a croak. Um, I think you can call that worship. I believe it was worship in that moment. And it was like that was the crack that let the light in. And I suddenly, I knew that Jesus had always been there through those months of darkness, through those months of despair and confusion, Jesus had been there, where I had maybe felt abandoned, going blindly through this dark tunnel by myself. I realized in that moment, Jesus had been tethered to me. He'd been there all along. I was attached to him. He was there. He was there. Even though I couldn't see him for so long, I couldn't feel him for so long. I had been tethered to him. I learned of his patience, his faithfulness, his relentless pursuit of me. Ask anyone walking with Jesus today, anyone that has endured some kind of soul suffering, some kind of darkness, and they will tell you with tears in their eyes, with a lump in their throat, and with a quiver in their voice, they'll tell you who their lover is. They will tell you that they've experienced his closeness. They will tell you of his nearness. They will tell you of the kindness of their king, the sweetness of Jesus. They will tell you of the goodness of their Savior. And it's experienced hand in hand with the Jesus of Gethsemane. So at the end of this bit of scripture, we're kind of left at a bit of a a cliffhanger, she hasn't found him. She's been calling out to him, but she hasn't found him. This can't be the end of the season, right? Like, there's got to be more. She can't be left like this. What happens next? To be continued. <laughs> but here's a bit of a spoiler for next week. Um, the good news is that they do find each other again. The good news is that they are reunited. The good news is that she is in his presence again, and there is nearness and closeness Uh, once again the purpose of pain isn't pain the purpose of pain is his presence the purpose of pain is closeness with God maybe you're in a season of blessed favor and there's no darkness tugging at your heart rejoice in that strengthen yourself in this season God is still knocking even in that season. God is still knocking and calling for closer and deeper intimacy with you even in that season. Answer that call. But maybe this morning you are experiencing a form of a dark night of the soul. And the reality is that we'll all face some form of trouble in our lives. May our response be like the woman in the Song of Songs to remind ourselves of who our lover is, to cling to his word and his promises, to meditate on his attributes and to worship him. Let's stand and worship.